Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen. I wonder today, do you know him? Amen. I hope you do, because that's my king. He's indescribable, and uh, that's probably just a little bit of who he really is. You know, we'll probably be here all day if we described him all the way. Let's all stand. Let's worship our king, and let's sing all hail the power of Jesus' name.
rejoicing in the Lord this morning? Amen. Amen. Hope you are. Let's uh, give glory to the Lamb as we sing, continue to worship together. <laughs> Continue to worship as we sing about the Lord Jesus. He's the ruler of all nature. He's the son of God. <coughs> He's the son of man. Thee, Lord, will I cherish. Thee will I honor. Thou, my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Let's sing this together. Just a lady singing. Jesus. 
You know, 2020 uh, will always be remembered, I think, as the year that just kept on giving. <laughs> giving us, as Christians, giving us ways to express faith and, and giving us opportunities to trust and obey um, when we don't understand things happening in our lives. Most of you probably know, and a lot of you have prayed for and have appreciated um, that this last Friday we laid to rest my brother-in-law, Harold, Harold Sox. Uh, I've known Harold since I was uh, 13 years old. And uh, he was very, very close to me and as close to me as my natural brothers was. Uh, he was a man, the sweetest man I've ever known and, and one of the most dedicated Christians I've ever known. And he was, um, he was a very young, active, vibrant, 71 years old. And, and we're going to miss him greatly. Um, one person said at the gathering at the funeral that God is gathering all these generals around for the end times, for his return. And I really believe Harold will be one of those generals. He was that kind of guy. Uh, influence in so many people in his life. And well, three months ago, uh, Melinda, the Lord laid on Melinda's heart uh, to ask Ron if we could sing a particular song. And little did we know at that time that the Sunday after all this took place, the Sunday after the memorial, that uh, we would be asked to sing it. And Ron was a little hesitant. He was like, I'm not sure we can, you can do that. And, but Melinda and I said, no, we want to do it. We want to sing that song because it expresses our heart completely. I think when, when things happen that we don't understand and we can't control, that, that we as believers only have one of two choices, and that's either to surrender 
Archer Rebel. <laughs> and uh, so I want to thank you, all of you that have prayed and the encouragement you brought. Uh, please continue to pray for my sister Bonnie and her family. It was a shock, to say the least, because he was just so healthy and uh, vibrant, like I said. But as we shared at the funeral, um, it, God wasn't surprised. It was no shock to him. And by God's grace, we were able to witness um, the family choosing to surrender, choosing to bow the knee and honor him, honor the Lord. And uh, I know many of you have had faced similar situations this year, hard times, difficult times that we faced in our lives. And we witnessed how you've handled that. And, and it's always an encouragement to the body to see a heart of surrender in an individual. And one of the last things that Harold said to his daughter before they placed him on a ventilator and he went to sleep was, this is in God's hand. <laughs> He's got this. And he chose to bow the knee before his Lord. Listen to the chorus of this song. <clears throat> it says, bow the knee, trust the heart of your father when the answers go beyond what you can see. Bow the knee, lift your eyes toward heaven, and believe the one who holds eternity. And when you don't understand the purpose of his plan, in the presence of the king, bow the knee. Oh. 
Father when the answer goes beyond what you can see. Thank you, Ron, and praise team. We're very blessed to have several teams that minister in music uh, here at Grace. And we appreciate every one of them. Um, you know, that song, Bow the Knee, forces all of us in this room to consider two questions. Do you remember when you said, yes, Lord? When you bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting Him as your personal Savior. Do you remember that day? Um, you should have a vivid picture of that. It should be something that when asked to recall, you have... 
much to say in terms of your salvation the day that you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then there is bowing the knee every day and surrender to the Lord. That is one that we all in Christ struggle with. Because that means giving up the things that we want to do and saying yes to the Lord. And I would say all of us who are in Christ struggle with that every day. And it's okay to admit that. It's okay to say, I struggle with bowing the knee to the Lord. Because I will say as the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners and I struggle every day to bow the knee. But that does not dismiss me from the responsibility to bow the knee. Because I know that's exactly what the Lord wants for my life. And I'm convinced from the scriptures that that's what he wants in every one of our lives. And I have one more thing to say about bowing the knee. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise of his glory there may be some today that will not bow the knee and in defiance say I will not bow to Jesus Christ but one day we will because he's our Lord but they will because he is Lord and so I ask you this morning have you considered that in your own life which ties in so well to what we want to discuss this morning as it relates to The believer's behavior, how we behave, does it matter? In short, the answer is yes, it does matter because God says it matters. I want you to take your Bibles and go with me to 1 Thessalonians. That is in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We will look at verse 16 today. And focus on one particular behavior that the Lord wants for all of us. But in order to appreciate what Paul is requesting, and in essence commanding of these believers in Thessalonica, we must understand the context. I don't know how you read the Bible. You may just pick it up and kind of peruse through it and... Say, oh, that's nice, and that's nice, and I'm not quite sure what that says, but that seems nice too. And then you might get to a passage where you go, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Has that ever happened to you? Where you're like, I'm not really sure what's going on? It's probably happened to all of us. But in the context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, Paul is addressing the behavior of the believer. He is telling these Thessalonican believers, this is the way you need to behave. This is the way you need to act. Now, behavior is not a popular subject. Think about it. There are a lot of young people in here this morning. When your parents say, I would like to discuss your behavior with you, are you going, I can't wait for that conversation to happen? Or do you walk into the living room going, oh my goodness, what now? Probably, oh my goodness, what now? Not, I can't wait to be corrected. Because that's a lot of times what takes place. 
when one is talking about behavior in the context of a child and their parents. And just so that you know, children, because the Lord has your protection in mind, do you know that he has given you a verse to memorize? Obey your parents. Obey them. You're like, ooh, I don't like that. Well, I didn't like it when I was a kid. But I see God's protection as I've gotten older and how God loves us so much. And the responsibility that the Lord has given to children to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right is something that you can't gloss over. So while behavior is something that we would like to gloss over at times as children, even as adults, when it comes to behavior as a believer, we would many times like to step back from the scriptures and say, yeah, I'm not interested in that. But here's the problem that you must address. If I was to ask you the question this morning, what is your view of God, what would your, what would your answer be? If you say, well, he is holy, 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 then you have something to deal with. If you believe that you're ultimately accountable to him, then there has to be, in your mind and in my mind, because I believe God is holy, 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 it has to be in my mind that then because he is and because he has a right in my life to tell me how to live, then I have to ask the question, am I open to that? You say, well, how often do I have to ask that question? Every day. Every day. Lord, am I willing to surrender to you today? So Christian behavior is something that the New Testament addresses on several levels and in several passages. We just happen to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and our emphasis is going to be on three verses. But in order to appreciate the instruction, you have to appreciate the context. If you do not appreciate the context, then when you come to these commands that the Lord gives, you'll go, ugh, it'll be a drudgery. You'll be like, ah, you know, I just don't want to do that. But when you look at it in the context of what Paul is saying, it's like, whoa, I want to do that. I want to obey my Lord because look what's coming. Now, in order to understand the context, you have to back up to chapter 4. So this is a good morning where, you know, you have your phones in front of you. Some of you do, and some of you have your Bibles in front of you. And so you'll need, need to be able to scroll back to chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, finally. Now, when someone says, finally, you're thinking what? Almost done. Paul had a habit of saying, finally, and he wasn't almost done. And this is one of those cases where the Apostle Paul deals with several subjects after he says, finally. The first subject he deals with is sexual immorality. That's not our subject for the morning, but we can say sexual immorality is rampant in our culture. True or false? Class, true. 
And it's not new. It's not new. And that's why Paul's addressing it with the Thessalonican church. There needs to be, it needs to be understood in the context that God has a plan in terms of a man and a woman. Did you know that? He's made it very, very clear. And do you know he addressed that from the very beginning? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his what? Wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So, in the first few verses of chapter 4, he deals with the issue of sexual immorality and the importance of being set apart as believers that our conduct should not look like the world in that area. He said, why is he dealing with that? Because it's vital. It's God's protection plan for the believer. And young people, might I say to you in love, embrace his protection plan. I've counseled enough families over the years and enough young people over the years to tell you that what the world has to offer is not all it's, right, all it's meant to be. God has for the believer a protection plan as it relates to relationships and how you behave. So I'll let you deal with that. But it's something that you need to read through, verses 1 through 8. And then the Apostle Paul begins to talk about loving one another. And they were a church that really did that well. But he encourages them to continue to do that. And then he talks about the behavior that they were to have toward outsiders. Well, then you come to chapter 4, verse 13, and this is the context with which Paul writes, this is how you need to behave, which comes later. He writes to them about something that concerned them. And what was concerning them was those who had died those around them in the church who had died. They're like, hey, what's, what's going on with them? Well, Paul answers the question. Look at verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That word asleep there is the word dead. Okay, they're dead. Um, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So who are the rest there? The world. So the way the world views death and the way the believer views death, there should be a difference. Can we agree on that? While it is a sad time because we've lost the person we love, if you're a believer in Christ and that person that went before you was a believer in Christ, then there's much rejoicing to be had because absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And while we grieve, and that's natural to do, we don't grieve as the world does. Paul is drawing a line in the sand. He's saying that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And the rest there he's talking about is the world. The world has no hope. I mean, how many funerals have you been to where there's been no discussion of Jesus Christ, no discussion of a relationship with the Lord, and all they talk about are the achievements of the person? When I hear that, when I'm attending a funeral, I go, uh-oh, problem. It's a problem. You see... When they bury me one day, I want them to talk about the Lord, whoever does that. Talk about my relationship with the Lord, the privilege I've had to serve the Lord for many, many years. Because at the end of the day, all that truly matters is whether you know Christ or not. So, 
he says, verse 14, for if we believe, and that word if means since, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now that's a very important phrase. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, look, this is not based on my authority. This is not me. This is based on the authority of the Lord. I say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive... Now, notice Paul believes he's going to be alive at the return of the Lord. By the way, that's how we need to live. Every generation needs to live like that, like the Lord's coming back. Wouldn't that be great? Listen, in 2020, we're going, hey, he's coming. Right? It would be great if he did. I hope you're ready for that. He says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who are dead in Christ. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And notice the next phrase, and the dead in Christ might rise first. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. It says, the dead in Christ shall, will. It's a given. They're going to rise first. Now, you have to get this picture in your mind. Some generation is going to experience this. Where there are going to be men and women, boys and girls, come out of the grave. (laughs) Wow! Right? And then the Bible says, as they do, then we who are alive and remain will go with them to meet the Lord. By the way, that's what it's about. People make heaven about a lot of things. Heaven's about the Lord. Okay? That's a hobby horse of mine. If I get on that hobby horse, I'll have you here till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Heaven is about Christ. He is the centerpiece of heaven. That's why it says, Then we who are alive, verse 17, and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You say, well, what's that going to be like? I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. But I'm hoping it happens while I'm still walking around. And then notice what it says at the end of verse 17. And thus we shall what? Always be with the Lord. Isn't it amazing to think that the Lord never leaves us and never forsakes us. He's always with us. And one day we will be in his presence forever. Never to be out of his presence. So what did Paul say? Did he just stop it there and say, well, good stuff. No, 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 no. Look what he says, verse 18. He says, Therefore, because all these things are true, comfort one another with these words. That's pretty good, isn't it? Absolutely it is. When When you're having stress or tribulation or trial or suffering, this is a great passage to read. Why? Because the end is not here. Yes, it's not here. One day, all who are in Christ are going to be raised to be with the Lord. And so Paul says, hey, comfort one another with these words. So he's given them sound doctrine. Doctrine they could stand on, right, through trials and tribulations, which they had been through. Now notice chapter 5, he continues. So his first message is, hey, the Lord's coming back. But he's got more news for him, encouraging news. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And the day of the Lord represents the time 
when after the church is caught up to be with the Lord, subsequent to that, there will be judgment on earth. And you can take it to the bank. You read this afternoon, if you doubt what I'm saying to you, read Revelation chapter 6 through verse, or chapter 18, and you're going to see what's going to unfold. It's going to happen. There will be judgment. Notice he says it will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman with child. And look at this. And they shall not escape. Listen to me. There's nowhere to run. You think about it, that gives me chills. It's like there's nowhere to hide. How do you hide from the Lord? Seriously? Adam and Eve tried that. How did it work out? Not too well. He says, verse 4, But you, brethren, boy, you love those first two words, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love. That word sober has the idea of being balanced in the Christian life. In other words, my practice in life, the things that I do match up to what I believe. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You say, okay, but salvation, I mean, salvation has a couple of different thoughts here. There's salvation from the penalty of sin. And that's what happens when you trust in Christ. Everybody understand that? That's salvation. But there's a salvation that's coming one day from the wrath to come. And that's what he's talking about. This is good stuff. In other words, not only have I been saved and I've been placed in Christ for eternity, and that guarantees me that one day when Christ comes, I'm forever going to be with him. And that's great and wonderful. But Paul is not only saying to them, that's true, but he's saying, beginning in verse 9, hey, look, i got more good news for you. You have been spared from the wrath to come. Look what it says, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. We will be saved out of the wrath. How does that sound to you? Pretty okay? Sounds pretty okay to me. Now listen... You, you're, you may be sitting out there and you're kind of skeptical and going, I'm not sure about all this. Read Revelation. Read Revelation. Call me. I'd love to sit down with you and talk about it. That's what he says, For God is not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, and that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So what were they supposed to do with this wonderful news? about escaping from the wrath to come. Do you know that the Apostle Paul had already told him that in this letter? Back in chapter 1, listen to these words. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we have with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait, listen to this, and to wait for his son from heaven, which he elaborates on in chapter 4. Whom he raised from the dead. By the way, I had a conversation this week with someone we were talking about that and and I said, you know, people are looking for witnesses at times. Sometimes just one. 
Do you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection of Christ? There were over 500 witnesses to his resurrection. So if you're a skeptic, you go, man, you know, 500? Pretty good. One's not bad, but 500's amazing. It's over the top. And notice he says, They turned from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus. Now listen to this next phrase. Who delivers us from the wrath to come? My friends, I've got great news for you if you belong to Christ. You are not going to experience the tribulation period. You're not going to. You say, is that on your authority? No, it's not on my authority. It's on the authority of the word. That's what it says. That's what it says. So what do you do with that? Do you sit on that information? <laughs> That's good information. I mean, we had great information in chapter 4. At the end of the chapter, and Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Well, look what he says for them to do with this. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Have you needed any encouragement this year? I mean, just one day, one hour, three days, three hours, 20 days, right? 20 hours. Hey, all of us in this room have needed encouragement because it's been a different kind of year, right? And there have been some people that are scared. They're still scared. That's the truth. Do you believe that? You don't have to walk around very far in our culture to experience someone who's scared to death. Listen, these guys were literally going through, hey, what's happened to those in the church, in the fellowship who have died? They're scared. And what does Paul do? He eliminates it. He said, man, listen, not only am I going to eliminate your fear, I'm going to give you great news. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive together will be caught up to meet them in the clouds, and we'll always be with the Lord. Hallelujah. But then he gives them icing on the cake. He says, hey, not only are you going to be with the Lord, but he's going to deliver you from the wrath to come. I mean, right if you're in that Thessalonica church, you're going, hallelujah, right? I bet they just started breaking out and singing. I would be, shouldn't we? By the way, that's why we sing. We sing to worship the one who has delivered us and who will deliver us. Singing is not about us. It's about him. That's another side note. So you come then with that in mind, those two wonderful truths in mind, you come to the list. But now if you're just coming to the list without having read the previous sections, you're like, uh, this is weighty. But if you're coming to the list with that, different, isn't it? I confessed first service to those guys. You know, I've been teaching for... 20-something years, almost 30 years. I don't think I've ever pointed this out. So I apologize. Because context is everything. I mean, you're getting this list of the do's and the don'ts in the Christian life, but boy, it looks a whole lot different when you got context. When you have, If you're the Thessalonican believers and you're looking at that list, it's not so weighty anymore because the Lord is coming back and he's going to spare us from the wrath to come. And you're on the edge of your seat saying, well, hey, what's next? And so he 
goes from doctrine to practice. How we live our Christian lives. Look what it says, verse 12. Here's the list. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We should appreciate those that labor in the Word of God. Sunday school teachers, Awana leaders, youth leaders. And then he says, live in peace with one another. That's easy to do. Right? No, it's not easy to do. Are you kidding me? It's difficult to do because if I'm going to live in peace with somebody, I have to consider them before I consider myself. Oh boy, you're like, man, Thad, this is rough. Yeah, but that, listen, remember what we just said. That's all that good news. So you're going, okay, this is possible. And then he says, verse 14, and we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. That's hard. That's hard. So like, there are unruly people in the body of Christ admonishing them and coming alongside of them when they're outside the lines, that's difficult to do. I will tell you that from experience, and you probably know it as well. If you see your brother or sister in Christ you know, living like the world, I mean, what do you do? You just let them walk on and do what they want to do? Or do you go after them? What do you do? Do you know? Thought about it? Does it matter? The Bible says it matters. There's a verse in Galatians chapter 1. There's a picture there of a believer in a ditch. That's the literal picture in the Greek. So if you see your brother in the ditch, what do you do? Ah, leave him in the ditch. He'll be all right. He'll figure it out. She'll figure it out. Or do you go down there and put your hand out and help him out of the ditch? What do you do? Yeah, but that, that's not easy. No, it's not easy. Because how do people take correction typically? Even when it's done in the best love you can give. They scowl. They don't like it. Listen to me. If you see me walking off the path, come get me. You say, Thad, that's weird. No, it's not. I'm human. I'm in the same boat you are. All of us are just a little bit away from crashing. We need the help of the Spirit to live to the glory of God. So he says, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. That's easy too, right? Patience. Whew. And notice he doesn't just say, be patient with believers. What does he do? Be patient with all men. It's hard to do. Impossible to do, as we're going to see without the Spirit. Then he says, verse 15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. By the way, that's our culture. Our culture does that, preaches that message, payback. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Again, he, he doesn't just talk about the relationship within the body. He talks about all men. So seek that which is good for all men. So not just considering those in the body of Christ. And then he comes to our section that I want to discuss this morning. We're just going to look at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, verse 18, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Ugh. Did you get that last pronoun? Did you catch that? This is the will of God for you. So, hey, good, that was for the Thessalonican church. Hallelujah. Sweat off the brow. Here's the problem. If we believe the doctrine 
of chapter 4 and the doctrine of chapter 5, and we're in Christ, this is for us too. Can we agree on that? It's for us too. Right? Just like it is for the, was for them, it's for us. I don't want to scare you. That was just the introduction. But a long one. Okay, I don't want to scare you. If, you've, if, you've, if you're visiting with us this morning, um, we won't be as long as you might think. But I'm going to give you verse 16. I just want to show you what it says because now we're coming to what Dr. Stephen, Stephen Olford referred to as the trilogy of truths. In other words, these things are good for you, right? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything gives thanks for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Let's look at this first one. Now, in the original language, what you have in your Bible, it'll say rejoice always. But in the Greek language, which is the New Testament, the word always comes first. So the command is to do what? Rejoice But he puts, right, the modifier in front in the Greek and says, always rejoice. And now all of us are going time out. Hold on a second. Always rejoice? Is that possible? Do you believe that's possible? Not talking about perfection. We're never going to have that this side of glory. But can we have an attitude of joy in the midst of suffering, conflict, and trouble and trial? I say, yeah. You know why I say, yeah? Because Paul is thinking the same thing. Yeah, it's possible. And we're going to see an illustration of his life that's outside, it's just outside the chalk, so to speak. It's unbelievable. So in the original language, it's put there for emphasis first. It would be like this. Like, if you want to emphasize something to your children, what do you do as a parent? Do you slap your, you know, clap your hands? Or do you say, like I used to with my boys, we have three boys, and they're all grown, and pretty much all of the house. Two out of three, third one's kind of part-time. So, if I wanted to get my youngest son's attention, it's not Andrew, it's Andrew Benjamin. Now, when I say Andrew, things are cool. If I say Andrew Benjamin, he's in trouble. He better listen up, right? There's an emphasis there. And he, guess what? I don't have to say, hey, I just emphasized your name. You know what he does? He goes, like that. And he's 23 years old, almost. Almost 23. Wow. But whenever I wanted my boy's attention, I would always use their middle name. And you know what? I had their attention. Here, you know what Paul's trying to get do with these believers? Get their attention. And so he puts the word always there first. Always rejoice. Because the question would come up, well, how often does that need to happen? Always. By the way, just to insert this now, I'll mention it in a few minutes. The world is looking for happiness. That's what they're looking for. And happiness lasts that long. Joy, my friends, can bring contentment in your life. It's an attitude. All right, so secondly, we see here in the text that the tense matters. So there's a lot of students in here. You guys love 
English, right? You just love English. Love English? Raise your hand. Love English? I actually loved English. I had to because my mom was a English teacher and professor. So it was like one of those things. When I used to, if I would say ain't, that was just like a sin. I, I could hardly ever get away with saying ain't. Even when I was in my 30s and 40s, she'd be like, son, you can't say that. Okay, well. So as we look at this particular uh, phrase, the tense matters. The verb is present tense, and it stresses the importance, as you can see, of having a continual attitude of joy. You say, well, what does that mean? That means there's no half times. That means there's no intermission. That's exactly the word in the Greek. No intermission. <laughs> You're like, hold on. Does Paul have lofty goals for these believers? Answer, yes. In light of the context, though, it makes sense, does it not? And so there's no breaks. Thirdly, this short statement is a command. It's not optional. Paul's not saying, now look, if you want to rejoice, fine. If you don't, fine. I mean, right, whenever a father typically or a mother typically says to their child, I want you to do this, do you ever have them say, is that optional? I know when I was growing up, if I would have said that, I'm not sure exactly what would have happened. Those words would not have come out of my mouth. Um, when, when my parents said do it, I did it. Um, is that happening at your house? When you give your kids instructions and, they, and you say, hey, take the trash out, did they do it? Or is there a delay? Or like, yeah, not interested? This is a side note, but one of my big concerns today, and I'm just being honest, there's a lot more young people in here, second service. I'm very concerned about the home today. And one of the main reasons for my concern is I see a lot of parents bowing the knee to their children. Hey, look, it's real simple. Hard to do, but real simple. How do we get out of the responsibility of what God says? Fathers are to be what? The leaders of the home. That's what it says. Does that mean the father's a dictator? No. Our God's not a dictator. Okay, Our God is a loving God. He loves us unconditionally and sacrificially. That's what fathers need to do with their children. But part of loving their children unconditionally and sacrificially is correcting them when they're wrong. Is that? Can we agree on that? And by the way, there does come a point when you can counsel your child, but that's not when they're five. And that's not when they're seven. Uh... Counsel your children at five. Your, your children aren't going to have enough attention span to listen to what you want to say to them. So listen, if your child is not walking out necessarily literally in front of a literal bus, but your child is walking out in front of a bus and there's danger and harm, what do you do? Do you stand there and let them get hit by the bus? No, you love your child. So the point is this. God has given to us the responsibility of obedience, just like a child is given the responsibility of obedience. And children, listen to me. I always tell young people this. There's a very good probability that you'll get married and have a family. 95% of people still get married 
And a lot of that percentage still has a family. How's your family going to look? <laughs> you say, well, I don't have to think about that till I'm 21. You better start thinking about it before then. Right? So that's just a side note. But I think it's very, very important. Fourth in this verse, the command to always rejoice is heavy-duty language, considering the context. Because these believers were, had already suffered. They had already suffered. And, and so if you're, if you're writing a letter, are you really telling these guys, hey, always rejoice? Don't, don't they need a break from that kind of language? Um, look, at, look at the evidence of their suffering. Chapter 1, verse 6. Having received the word in what? Much tribulation. Not a little bit, much. Much hardship. That's the word tribulation. Much hardship. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Look at the middle part of that. You also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So there's sufferings there that he refers to in chapter 2. Sufferings in chapter 3. So all this leads up to chapters 4 and 5, which we've discussed some this morning. Look at the bottom of that. We kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. <laughs> it's like, how many of you up for that? Sound great? All right. Well, that, Paul warned them. They warned them. Hey, this was coming. By the way, the Lord's warned us. The Bible tells us that the godly in Christ Jesus, the godly, underline that, the godly in Christ Jesus will absolutely suffer it's a guarantee you say yeah but that we're not suffering like people around the world you know that are being killed martyred for their faith you know um and some you know people aren't walking in and pointing a gun at you yet are you listening to me yet some generation write it down will suffer for the gospel of Christ just like the apostles did who were martyred and just like the early church did who men who were burned at the stake for the cause of Christ and the gospel of Christ. You say, with that, that, that's heavy. Yeah, it's heavy. It's heavy. So you know what we need to pray for? Steadfastness. Lord, help us to be steadfast because you know this. For certain, you can see what's going on in the United States. Guys, listen to me. One of the major issues that will happen within the next four to six years will be specifically a defense of freedom of religion. Are you listening? I hope you're listening. It's coming. It's already here in some forms. So how is the church going to respond? I don't know. We'll see. You know, it kind of puts a damper on those theologians that um, market health, wealth, and prosperity theology. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how they're dealing with this kind of text, right? And what are you talking about? I mean, okay, if the Lord loves me, then he's going to give me everything that's good. He already has. He already has. If you're in Christ today, read about the blessings that you have in Ephesians 1. They're list is long all right 
You say, how in the world can I do this rejoicing thing? Well, victory happens only one way. Okay? I want to give you that. Victory happens one way. Here it is. Victory happens as we walk by the Spirit. Okay? Victory happens as we walk by the Spirit. Are you familiar with the Galatians 5 passage which says, Walk by the Spirit so that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh? Are you familiar with that passage? In that passage, Paul contrasts what a person who's being led by the flesh does versus a person who's walking by the Spirit. You know what he says? A person who's walking by the Spirit can produce the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, if you study the fruit of the Spirit, please keep in mind that they are, it is the fruit, not fruits. Sometimes people break it down and they go, well, look at all these fruits, the fruit. In other words, if I'm walking by the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all that's going to flow out. Okay? Because I'm a, some wonderful person? No, but because I'm being led by the Spirit of the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay? So all those things are present if that's going on in my life. And so victory happens as we walk by the Spirit of God. I would encourage you this afternoon to read that passage. There's a lot, lot of good stuff there. All right? S.D. Gordon, in talking about this particular passage, he says this, Joy is distinctly a Christian word and a Christian thing. It is. It absolutely is. Because the world is looking for what? Happiness. That's a term that the world uses. But the church, it's joy. It's an attitude. Happiness is based on circumstances, Right? But joy, I can have joy in the midst of trial and tribulation. That's right, you can. So if you're going through a sickness, if you're going through pain, if you're going through rebellion with a child in your home, you can have joy. You say, hold on a second, Thad. Some of those situations, those are kind of rough. Like I've got rebellious children, right? And, and we're suffering in our home right now. Or I'm, I have an illness, right? And things aren't looking good. So how am I to respond with joy? Only with the help of the Holy Spirit. Only with His help. And there's an illustration I want to show you before we quit today. Turn with me to Acts 16. You're going to love this story. Wonderful story of two men who displayed joy in the midst of crazy. I mean, you're like, this is crazy. This is like 2020 to them, okay? This is that big of a deal. Look in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. Look at this, and then we'll be done this morning. Look what it says. Verse 16 of Acts 16. Paul and Silas are on their second missionary journey, okay? The Bible says, verse 16, it happened that as they were going to the place of prayer... A certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. So she had an evil spirit. Who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. In other words, they were using the girl for their profit. All right. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, These men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. 
And she continued doing this for many days. Verse 18. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Why? Their profit was gone. Okay? And then it says, verse 20, And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. So what happens? The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off. That's humiliation. Okay, I want you to follow this. Tore their robes off and then proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. How does that sound? How does that sound? Doesn't sound real good. By the way, the text doesn't tell us this, but beaten with rods, which Paul refers to in Corinthians, he says he was beaten several times with rods, it would have caused bleeding. When they beat them with rods, they would beat them in the back, they would beat them behind their thighs, and they would beat them in their, in their side. That's going to hurt. You know what? It's not only going to cause bleeding on the outside. Where else is it going to cause bleeding? On the inside. That doesn't sound fun at all. It says, they rose up to beat them with rods. And then verse 23 says, and when they had inflicted them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Underline that because... That jailer had the responsibility. It was literally, his life was literally on the line. Okay? When they were given responsibility to guard someone, they had to guard them. Okay? So, it says, verse 23, they inflicted many blows. They threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Verse 24, and he having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is what that inner prison would have looked like. Whether it was a house or whether it was a building, there would have been a, a general room, but then there would have been another room that would have led down. And so they're going down into a type of dungeon. Okay? There's going to be darkness. There's going to be cold. Now think about this. And there's going to be blood and pain because they've already been beaten. These guys are miserable. Let's just be honest. Okay? So what we have in front of us is a time of misery. You say, well, then what do they start doing? They got to start pouting and moaning and groaning, and right? Because this isn't fair. In the Christian life, guys, when they're suffering in our lives, if we're honest, sometimes we've moaned and groaned and pouted and said, I don't deserve this. Any of you with me on that? Sure we have. It's natural. Because it's natural for man to care about himself. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 5, in the context of a husband loving his wife, no man ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes and cherishes it. <laughs> we like ourselves. We're good with that. So these, these people out there who say, we got to get people to love themselves, that's not the problem. Okay? People already love themselves. That is the problem. Okay? That is the problem. So these guys are in an inner dungeon 
room. They're dark, they're cold, they're bleeding, they're hurting. And then craziness goes on. That's how I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What? Let me tell you about one more thing there. You see in verse 24, he talks about the stocks. So they're cold, right? They've been beaten, they're hurting, but they were put in the stocks. And the stocks were arranged like this. They were spread out, so based on the height of the person, they would fasten them to the stocks and spread their legs as far as they could go, inducing cramping. You ever had a cramp? Any of you ever had a cramp? Any of you ever had a cramp where you were yelling, right? You just hope it doesn't happen in church. But, but you've had those kind of cramps, and you're yelling, and you're like, ah! Our oldest son used to get them all the time when he was growing up. And all of a sudden, the middle of the night, he's just screaming out loud, ah, you know? And so Trace and I are like, what in the world? First few times, what are you doing? His legs would cramp, like, right behind, right behind his knees. And I'll have to give her credit. She did most of the rubbing of his legs. I didn't really do that. But she would rub his legs and, and he would feel better after a while. But there were growing pains and he grew up to be six foot. I didn't have any of those growing pains when I was young. That's why I'm five foot something. But cramps. So they're in the stocks. They're cramping they're in the dark, they're isolated, they're in pain. And the Bible says in verse 25 that Paul and Silas were praying and doing what? Singing hymns of praise to God. Does that make sense to you? If you're just looking at it on the surface, does that make any sense? It does not, but it does. It does. I'm going to tell you how it does. It doesn't on the one hand because we're going, man, there's a lot of pain and suffering. But these hymns of praise to God that they sang, which we're not told what they are. Who sings hymns of praise to God when they're suffering and in torment? People who believe that God is what? In control. Have you ever sat with somebody who's terminally ill and they request a hymn to be sung? That ever happened to you? That's happened to me several times. Why in the world would they do that? Because they know who's in control. They know the Lord is in control. And so the Bible says that they began singing hymns of praise to God. Now look at this. And the prisoners were listening to them. Uh-oh. You know what that tells me? They had people listening to what was going on and their response to their pain and suffering and you know what? We have people that are watching us when we go through pain and suffering. You believe that? It's true. So the question becomes, how are we going to respond? And does it even matter? Let me show you something real quick. We're almost done. This is amazing. Because what they did in their response mattered. Look at verse 26. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken 
and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. So what's there an opportunity to do? Leave. The Bible says, verse 27, when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. That just shows you that he had the responsibility. Right? He knew that. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. That had to be an amazing thing for him to hear. Because if, if, if the chains fall off, what are you doing? If you're a prisoner, you're leaving. Paul says, hey, look, we're all here. And then he says, verse 29, And he called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Oh, man, that just, I don't know what that does to you. It makes me jump out of my shoes. It's like, whoa, these guys are going through a tremendous amount of suffering. All of a sudden, there's this earthquake. The chains fall off. They stay. But what had happened in the meantime? They were... Praying and rejoicing. That's what they were doing. Singing hymns of praise to God is rejoicing. And then from their testimony, here comes the jailer and he asks a question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, you must do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Is that what it says? Not what it says. People do not have permission to add to the gospel of Christ. Okay? A lot of that going on these days, unfortunately. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing, period, period, period. Look at what it says. And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. Well, to believe in the Lord Jesus, do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Do you believe in God's Son that He took the penalty for your sins on Himself? Do you believe that? I believed that when I was seven years old. I've almost been saved 50 years. Woo! Man. And I don't, I don't even look 50, right? But I've almost been saved that long. 50 years I've known the Lord. And you know, I had somebody ask me recently, that have you ever... Um, doubted the truth of the word not one second not one second you know a person who knows christ lifts this up and goes i believe right i believe doesn't mean we don't have questions doesn't mean that but we believe and paul and silas believed and look at the result of their response to their suffering it says Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. Hello. Man. Oh, something's happened to him. Right? He's changed. He's saved. He's a different man. And immediately he was baptized and he and all his household. Whoa, man, this, this has fingers to it. I mean, their response of rejoicing and praising God... It's got fingers to the jailer and his family. Notice what they did. Verse 34. 
They had a worship service. That's what they did. Verse 34 says, And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. Pretty good, isn't it? Pretty good story in Acts 16. Here's the question, guys, for all of us to consider. How will we this day forward, forget the past. How will we respond to trials and tribulations and sufferings knowing what we know now? Knowing that the Lord's coming back for us, knowing that we've been spared from the wrath to come, how will we respond? Knowing that there are others who have gone before us who responded in ways we look at and we go, how? There's only one way. They responded because the Spirit of the Lord was in control of their lives. That's how. Young people, you're going to go through times of suffering yourself. I know it's hard to imagine that because you're young and you're protected and everything's grand and good. But I've got news for you, young people. As you get older, things change. Life happens. And things come around the corner that you're not expecting. In 30 years of being in the ministry, I've sat with people who literally have said to me, verbatim, that I was not expecting this. Has that ever happened to you? In your life where you've looked ahead and go, I wasn't expecting that. Hey, guys, I've got good news for you, and we'll close in prayer. As we're walking the Christian life, hopefully as we're living to the glory of God, there is one, only one, who knows your next minute, who knows your next hour, who knows your next day, who knows your next year perfectly, and that's the Lord. Will we trust him and rejoice always as he wants us to do? Let's pray. Lord, um, this is an incredible text. The command's pretty, pretty difficult because it requires us to surrender and it's impossible in our own flesh to rejoice always. We know that. But Lord, all things are possible with you, as your word tells us, and we have your spirit that lives in us. And I, I pray that we would depend on the spirit of the living God. That when we go through trials and tribulations and sufferings in this life, that we would lean on you, that we would have the same approach as Paul and Silas and that we would pray, that's normal, that we would come before you and seek you out and pray. And Lord, just as Paul did, he prayed that the thorn of the flesh would be removed from him. He begged you three times and, and you didn't take it away. You just told him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Lord, we can rest in that that you're going to get us through the hard times because as your word tells us, you're never going to leave us and you're never going to forsake us. Lord, every one of us in this room, 
I'm quite certain, has been through trials and tribulations. It's how we respond to those that matters. It does have impact in the lives of other people. Help us, Lord, to have an attitude of joy. Help us to rejoice in the Lord always. And as Paul wrote, again I say rejoice. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women and boys and girls in Christ that, that trust you on a daily basis, knowing that nothing happens in our lives without it first passing through your hands, and that you will give us the strength to be able to deal with the suffering and the trials. Help us to trust you, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I wanted to um, just share a couple of announcements with you before... Um, you leave today. Um, we will be having a Thanksgiving Eve service, um, which is Wednesday night before Thanksgiving on Thursday. And uh, it'll be one hour. We're going to have it from 6.30 to 7.30. In case some of you need to go out and get, you know, Thanksgiving stuff at the last minute, um, you know, like cranberry sauce in a can, sliced. That's the only way to do that. Without that, you have not had Thanksgiving. So uh, we will have a service from 6.30 to 7.30. I encourage you guys to come and be a part of that. If there's ever a year that we need to stop and look and be thankful, it's this year. That even in the midst of all these unknown things, we know for certain God's in control. So I encourage you to come, be a part of that. It'll be for one hour, and that'll be a good time of worship. All right. Um, one of the things we're trying to get started here at Grace is a new to Grace class. We'll do that in January. So I've had several ask about membership here. And so if you're interested in that, you can see me or call the church office and we'll give you more information about that. Guys, it's been good to be with you. I enjoy being with the body of Christ. I trust you have a great day. And we look forward to, uh, if the Lord doesn't come first, look forward to being back together next week. You are dismissed.